And thanks for joining us now on KVCR for KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. On this edition of the program, it's music from and conversation once again with David Arkenstone. We heard from him in December of 2022 when he had several regional stops for his Winter's Eve concert. Now talking about some of his other releases with so many to choose from. I've interviewed people who I thought of as prolific with multiple discs or books, graphic mm-hmm. novels, etc. But you, I don't know, somewhere around 80 discs in right around 30 years. That's two to yeah. three releases every year. So, yeah. Well, in 2022 alone, you released Native Hearts, Avalon, Between Earth and Sky, as well as Songs Inspired by Middle Earth Volume 2. And as a huge Tolkien fan myself, let's start there. Which, by the way, my fandom predates Peter Jackson's productions. I have to state that. And um, good. That's always great to hear. So many people uh, profess their love for mm, (laughs) the book, but they quote things from the movie, which, as we know, were drastically different. I read that some of your musical inspiration came from not only Ian Fleming, but also J.R.R. Tolkien. So with your fascination for Tolkien, the Arkenstone, this is an important jewel in The Hobbit and is central to the latter part of the story involving Smog the Dragon. And that said, I'm just going to start off by asking, is Arkenstone actually your real name? It's my real legal name. I can say that. Ah. I wasn't born with it. Okay. I identify with it so strongly. I took it. Okay. Well, I knew that was easily going to be a chicken or egg kind of thing. A love for Tolkien right. could lead to that name, or having that name would be, my God, I have to find out more about where this came from. Okay. Of course. Well, looking at songs for Middle Earth, the first one or the very recent one, let's think about Peter and the Wolf for a second. With, you know, the various instruments representing various characters, Are there actual instruments which represent, say, hobbits and different ones for elves and maybe even something else for the high elves than something darker or foreboding for the orcs? Or is this more of a tonal exploration and representation? Well, there are instruments in the orchestra that tend to communicate certain things, like take the track called The Great River and the Argonath. I did this sort of undulating string figure to emulate the water. But then the oboe is on top of that. For some reason, the oboe goes really well with sort of water. Mm. I don't know why, but it's traditional. I didn't invent it, but it works, and so I used it. You know, and in each of the tracks, I had to think about what palette I was going to use for sure. Like in Karis Galladin, I used a bunch of high choir things as well as some other melodic instruments, but I felt like that was a choir moment. Shadowfax... There's a bunch of horns in there that seem to bring out that atmosphere. Nice. So I had to really think about it. I mean, I had to think about the whole project. You know, it's, I wouldn't say arrogant, but it's something to try to illustrate such a great book. I mean, to think you can bring something to it. But there are so many people that encouraged me and fans and people who love the books. And, and I felt like the tracks I chose, I could illustrate with my skills. So 
I went for it. <laughs> you know, it seems like it would be just a natural fit for you anyway. It really is, beyond your name, of course, but also just the fact that as long as I've been familiar with your works, they have always taken someone to another place, which is what we hope music might do anyway. But we're talking about sure. actual fantasy lands or, say, some of your Celtic influence pieces. That We're definitely going mm -hmm. in those directions as well. So it would be just a natural fit for you. And I wouldn't have thought arrogant at all because it just seemed for some people it would be natural. <laughs> well, it felt that way, but there's a lot of people out there that... I don't know. <laughs> Tolkien purists. You, you can't please everybody, let's no. put it that way. Right, right. <laughs> But people who enjoy my music, I think they will enjoy that. Absolutely. I've not been able to delve too deeply into the most recent songs inspired by Middle Earth, but I really ingested kind of a you're soaking in it now kind of moment with the first one. <laughs> oh my God. And we're talking total immersion. Looking at, say, Galadriel's Mirror, for example, you're wanting to give people even more of an ethereal, into-the-mist kind of feeling. So do you build pieces like this, starting with a drone of, of some sort, and then after that, interweave the musical phrasing? You know, I guess I'm really asking for process on different types of pieces. Right, and it's always different. Like, that particular one has a sort of a moving figure underneath it. I just wanted to illustrate the environment that Galadriel's mirror was in more than what Frodo actually saw in the mirror. Ah. That would be a whole epic thing. So it was more like, here's the forest, here's the mirror, here's the water, here maybe is Galadriel if you let your mind be open. And so that one came from that, I think. Okay, so we're really talking about the land of Elrond as opposed to the trip the mirror takes you in itself. Yes. The... Oh, wow. Well, that deserves another Well, listen. I wanted to take the mysterious part of it, you know, because it's a portal, and you don't know what you're going to see, just like she says. Right. So I didn't want to get too literal. Good. Well, that's something for any type of art that we should be able to read different things into it. But now I definitely have a different read next time I go back into listening, which will be... Well, as soon as you and I are done. Somewhere out there, I found Shadowfax and the White Rider, and you just referred to a Shadowfax piece a second ago. Are these different pieces, by the way? No, it's the same thing. Okay, okay, it's the same thing. It's just thing, the so. title. I wanted to illustrate Gandalf's ride more than just Shadowfax, although the piece does break down in the middle, and in my own head, I picture, you know, maybe Shadowfax needs a little break. <laughs> but I think listening-wise, I love to put little breaks in there and little left turns whenever I can. Because that's what I enjoy, 
you know, it's not that I get tired of something after two minutes. It's just like, okay, if I'm trying to illustrate a story somehow, it's not going to be all the same. It's got to change. Even if I come back to the main theme or whatever, it's got to go somewhere in order for that payoff to sort of happen. Well, that is definitely a piece that really propels a person along. And I think many people might read the title and not know that Shadowfax is the Lord of the Horses. And so it's easy for me anyway to read in this ride, but I think anyone would get propelled on that sort of moving along at a fast pace and easily, I think, even pick up the horse hooves, even though it's not quite there, but it's enough that, well, it took me there, and I'm trying to decide if I was reading into it or if it really is the music itself. Even if somebody picked it up and didn't know Shadowfax was a horse, Mm -hmm. never heard the word before, you see the white rider next to it, you know, I think even if you had never seen the title... I think what you said is exactly true. It's got that rhythm of riding horses. And I've done a number of tracks over the years like that, like the Riders of Rohan in the first one. Yes. And I've done a song called Equus Fair on Celtic Book of Days. I mean, I just love the idea of horses galloping. So I think people would get it, even if they didn't know anything about it. I would think so. I have yet to take it around the room, as it were, and say, okay, <laughs> what goes in your mind? But I'm not beyond yeah, that either. Sure. So. <laughs> You know, looking at your homepage, simply davidarkenstone.com, soundtracks for your imagination. Between that wonderful four-word statement and what I'll have playing in the background as we speak, folks may find it hard to believe that you grew up listening to Yes and ELP, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, I should say, and even had your own prog rock band for a bit. Was that purely a college band kind of thing when you were doing that? No, that was post-college. Oh, yeah. Really going for the brass ring. Although the time when we were doing that band, New Wave was all over the place. You know, the bands with the skinny ties. and, Ah. and Deep prog rock was sort of on the back shelf, I think, in record company minds. So it didn't connect. We connected with a lot of people, but it never connected with a record contract or a label, which was sad because some of the music, we had incredible vocals. So it was almost like Sticks meets Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer. Oh, sweet. A lot of that music. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> That's a wonderful combination that actually represents <laughs> the earliest of my record days, let's say, you know, high school, <laughs> middle school. So. Sure, sure. Well, it was fun, and we worked our asses off, but we just didn't connect. You know, it wasn't until after I abandoned that, after I had two small kids, and I was going, I don't know, I can't rehearse four nights a week anymore and painting houses or whatever the hell I was doing at the time to make money. It wasn't until I concentrated on my own path doing all the parts, because right around that time, computers and synthesizers started to be able to talk to each other. So that was a really huge light bulb moment for me because I could make different tracks on my own and really paint a picture that was a little bit more deep, I guess I would call it, okay. at least to me. Well, I started encountering your music when I was producing a New Age ambient and space music show in the 90s. So now beyond the music, what made your discs stand out to me in a big, big way was the inclusion of maps and art and accompanying storylines for otherwise instrumental releases. So this type of CD layout, was this you or someone else or maybe even you telling someone else, here's the concept and go? 
I actually came up with most of that stuff. I, along with the producer, you know, especially of an album called In the Wake of the Wind, which was the first one that had a map, which is truly another extension of my love of Tolkien. He's got maps for everything. Oh, yeah. So once I created this album that had original places, you know, that nobody ever heard of, we created this land. It's like, okay, it's only natural to do a map and try to figure out how this all goes together. And that predates Game of Thrones and other things that are all about that. It was more like a fantasy soundtrack, I guess I'd call it. That one was very popular. People loved that whole aspect because it was something you could get totally wrapped up in. And I don't know, it just seemed a perfect extension of with the music because the music told a story loosely, I'll add. But still, it went to different places. It had different kinds of music on it. I would barely even call that album New Age, even though the record label was a New Age label. I got like what we just discussed about coming from prog rock bands and stuff to be all of a sudden, okay, I got a record contract and I'm on a New Age label. It's like I had to figure out what that was and what I could and couldn't really use palette-wise, I think. Like my electric guitar riffs had to take a back seat for a while. Yeah. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I have to admit, too, that since you, well, you opened the doors, so I'll just dive right through it. It was some of In the Wake of the Wind I had trouble putting onto my show, which was supposed to be very drifting and ethereal. And some pieces, of course, worked quite wonderfully, but that's what I started embracing the term contemporary instrumental music, you know, just because I couldn't describe it another way. You're listening to KDC Art. I'm David Fleming in conversation with David Arkenstone. We were hearing loosely about a number of releases or approaches to his music. DavidArkenstone.com for more and more with Arkenstone as KVC Arts continues. He has under his belt or is a part of 100 CDs or more, let alone his soundtrack work. And his music, especially those under his own name, are designed to take you places, real or imagined. Coming up, his soundtrack work, including for World of Warcraft. First, though, while David Arkenstone's music usually has some sort of accompanying storyline at a loose level, he has, in the past, collaborated with established authors to add to that even more. mentioned storylines before you worked with fantasy novel writer Mercedes Lackey on a few albums what kind of a collaboration was this with Mercedes Lackey did she provide a storyline and then you provided the soundtrack to it or how did that work it was kind of like we had a couple discussions about it that she did the album Return of the Guardians which was an extension of In the Wake of the Wind and somebody at the record label knew of her work I hadn't even heard of it and they put us together and then we discussed some ideas of where the story would go and she read the old story and then she came up with just unbelievable things in a journey kind of way and then I knew I had a couple things I wanted to illustrate but then a lot of it came from her writing which was great because to be able to follow along with an original story that was just mine it was inspirational as far as coming up with different parts to illustrate different parts that would end up telling the musical story but she was very 
eager's not the word, but I would get faxes from her back then that were like ten pages long. <laughs> going and going. And then I'd read it and it was like, Oh yeah, this will be really cool. You know, it was a very exciting time. She was very creative and prolific. Those are the words I would say instead of eager. Beyond composing for your albums, you also have composed a lot for television, there are some movies, or your numerous World of Warcraft works. In the case of composing, and maybe this is different each time, but do you always get to see what you're composing for before sitting down with keyboard or guitar or whatever it is? Or is there ever a case of them just saying, you know, okay, give us something upbeat with strings, something dark, and three medium tempo items? It varies, you know, like I did the theme for the Kentucky Derby. Yes. There wasn't anything to see except, you know, I got some video of slow motion horses and some flyovers of the Kentucky bluegrass, which was all very inspirational, which they're still using that theme today, which is, I'm amazed, honored. But with the world of Warcraft, mostly all I can see are conceptual pieces of art. And then sometimes they can do a flyover of the particular zone that I'm put the background music to. Usually it's just conceptual art that I get to see. And I've been fortunate to be on that team because there's several great composers and you know, I'm honored that they keep calling me because I contribute something to their environment. And again, I'm not sure World of Warcraft would exist without the Tolkien world. Because the World of Warcraft, even though it's got a sort of a hostile title, is more like an adventure. You're a player in a big adventure. And it's not all about Warcraft. There's all kinds of things in that land. And there are maps, and there are different races, and there are interactions. And it's an extension of the same thing that I enjoy doing on my record. So it's kind of amazing to be able to do that for that kind of audience, such a huge audience. Oh, I would say but so. I some even... of the stuff where I scored for TV, I met a director who did a lot of stuff in the 2010s and such. And he did a lot of sort of frontier-based documentaries well they weren't really documentaries they were more like little films about the expansion of our country westward and so 
that was a whole other thing, and that's probably where I started really getting to the Native American inspirations because I did play Native American flute, and then I just got stuff in every key. <laughs> so, I could, so I could be more flexible. Nice. You know? But you were going to say something about the World of Warcraft. That oh, I I interrupted. yeah, but I'm glad I got that statement about the westward expansion kind of thing, because this is a yet another type of painting or another feeling that a person would yeah. get with your music. So that's, again, yeah. something that I can leave Ken Burns alone and go with your stuff now. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> well, Ken Burns, he mm. uses music that is pretty accurate to the period, mostly. And I tried to still an extension of the kind of music that I make, you know, whether I see Native Americans and frontiersmen battling it out, or you see an old fort, or you're hearing a story about President Madison and the burning of the White House, whatever it is, it's still a big adventure at the heart of it. It's exploration. That resonates with me, too. Once again, beautiful. Wow. The thing about Warcraft that I was going to say is I've become dear friends with a musician out here who one of his early bands came together because of Blizzard Entertainment. They even formed a band to win the BlizzCon competition. Wow. And oh yeah, it was incredible. And one of his songwriting partners already had thousands of hours logged in playing World of Warcraft. <laughs> but my friend Ben, when he was first writing music for the group, it was called Songhammer. And he listened to all the scores for the existing expansions. And what I asked him is if when the Cataclysm expansion came out, as a musician, if he noted something different, something special, something that moved him. And he actually answered me, actually, yes, saying that the Cataclysm score had this, his words, super epic timpani, drum, deep horn and vocal melody, and so much so that these were direct influences on several of the songs for even a song that he wrote called Cataclysm, but also many other songs that were leaning more toward hard rock, but they still, he said that the spirit of your scores gave him the sonic foundation needed to write that music. Yeah, I mean, I was expecting, I don't know, I asked, okay, you're a gamer, did you notice anything? But it was a, right. at a much deeper level, so you're really hitting people maybe deeper than you think or would hope. So. Yeah, I think you're right about that. That was the first expansion I really had a big chunk of. Like before that, I had done a couple one-offs, and uh, I did something called a, there was a fire, there was a, something about fire that was in both, both worlds, because it's kind of a two-world system. And that was my first lead-in to the music for World of Warcraft. But Cataclysm, I got hired to do that. I just dove in with both feet and head and everything I had because I thought it was a great opportunity for me. Oh, and, it, and it was. And I remember the first couple sessions, I had like 20 tracks. And there were four composers on that, at least four. And I had the majority of the first couple sessions we did with orchestra because I had written so furiously. And they liked what I did. So they were booked into the orchestra sessions, and it started a really nice collaboration. To compose music for a game expansion, 
was the first step to immerse yourself in the previous incarnation or iteration, and then I suppose maybe there would have to be a conscious effort to retain some sort of theme or recurring musical phrase and then build upon that so there's a connection yeah. to the previous. Yeah, you're right about that. Although, like with each expansion comes new areas to explore for the player. Mm, sure. You have different zones, you have different races, so they're all under the game banner but they need to be approached as new things, although there is a sound. I mean, like somebody put together the new Dragonflight soundtrack on YouTube, which is seven hours of music, which is an amazing amount of music. But it's all intertwined. All the stuff we did is all connected, you know, from one composer to the next. There's no demarcation. So it has a sound, and it comes from the palette you use because it's mostly orchestral. So whatever you can squeeze out of the orchestra will fit in there. You know, there's not a lot of piano. There's not a lot of synthesizer. There's stuff you just steer away from because it just doesn't fit as well as the sort of more epic sounds that the orchestra can make. Nice. One more thing on composing. I spoke with Stanley Clark a number of years ago a few times. and What a giant... Oh my God, yes. It was yeah. such an honor. And of course, as you always find out, he's just one of the most humble people. <laughs> and he gives lessons and he charges people a can of food to bring in. And sometimes right. that's donated. Sometimes, as he said, we eat good on Sundays. <laughs> but he, as a bass player, he primarily composes on the keyboard, or at least that's where he starts his compositions. How about you? Since you are such a multi-instrumentalist, what do you primarily compose with? I usually start with keyboard or drums, trying to get a feel for whatever. If there's no drums in it, of course, I'll just start with the keyboard, because the keyboard is the gateway to a thousand sounds you can make. The mm. keyboard is not a piano. It can be a piano, but that's only one aspect of it. Like, there's several places on music inspired by Middle Earth, where I use this incredible sampled French horn. And it's so realistic, it's scary. So I use it like on three tracks. But usually I'll use the keyboard to try to get an orchestral bed started something. At least that's what I do lately. Some of the songs with drums, they usually start with drums. Because I know there's going to be a rhythmic aspect to it. It's mostly the keyboard, though. Sometimes I'll take out my mandolin or guitar or play them next to each other like start a track with the mandolin and then put the guitar next to it for a fatter sound. And sometimes I get good results with that. It depends on the day and the project, I guess. Okay. But I get a backup for a second. I was on the road with a top 40 band when School Days came out, and we were just like, oh my God, this album. The way he played his bass, it was just unbelievable. Stanley. It was just, oh, yeah. it, was a, it was mind-blowing. It was just mind-blowing. Absolutely. I, I have to say, I just totally geeked out when I met him. Uh, he, he invited me backstage, <laughs> and I had a full School Days album tucked in my blazer that I pulled out for him to sign, so that's on my wall right now, I'd say. Nice. Uh, oh, absolutely. I wasn't playing bass, but our bass player, we just sat and listened to that album over and over again, because I brought my turntable on the road with me back then. Mm -hmm. and I had a orange crate full of records, and I took that. Because a lot of times we'd be in a place for a week or two, and I just felt more at home if I had part of my record collection with me. Absolutely. And such a bass anthem to have with you on that trip. Oh, That's fantastic. God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's been Music From and Conversation with David Arkenstone for the entirety of this edition of KVC Arts. So much music to choose from, and most of it would serve as a wonderful introduction 
though hopefully we've accomplished that here on this program. More at davidarkenstone.com. And with that, we wrap up another edition of KVC Arts. Thanks again to David Arkenstone and here at KVCR. Thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, Paulina Garcia, and Sharina Wad. Many past KVC Arts can be found through iTunes, NPR One, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support. Give any time of the year at kvcrnews.org support. And thanks again.